It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh here with Zerlina Maxwell for a very special edition of Signal Boost. We are talking about holding Trump accountable, the January 6th investigation, all of the attending legal fights, and we are doing it with two of the most accomplished men possible to make it happen. We are joined right now by Nick Ackerman. He's a former Watergate prosecutor and an assistant U.S. attorney in the SDNY, and shortly we will be joined by Danny Savalos. Uh, defense attorney and legal analyst for NBC and MSNBC. Nick, thank you so much for being with us this morning. How are you? Nice to be here. It's so great to have you. And again, you're a former Watergate prosecutor. And that's why (laughs) it felt like a very good time um, to try to unpack all of this for people. The first question I have for you is, you know, we've talked many times over the years, um, whether it be during the Mueller investigation or even recently about this investigation, about whether or not there was something happening at the DOJ and whether or not Merrick Garland um, had opened an investigation into what happened on Jan 6. That was not just the individual specific people who stormed the building, but the people who planned the conspiracy to storm the building and violently overthrow the election. Um, Is it happening? Do we have ev- enough evidence now in the reporting about Ali Alexander and the grand jury to say with certainty that Merrick Garland has opened an investigation? Well, when you say opened an investigation, there is a grand jury that's been investigating this matter. Uh, it appears that questions uh, are being focused now on other people that um, are kind of in the Trump or- orbit, including possibly Trump. Um, But we really don't know exactly what's going on. I mean, what has happened here is there's been a progression of first going after the people that were the rioters. uh, And now it's become more serious with two very substantial cases against the the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. If you look at those indictments, I mean, they are just slam dunk indictments that have detailed information from people's uh, text messages. uh, And it appears that there are In both cases, two insiders who are cooperating and going to testify. Uh, And of course, you've got the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers being connected in some ways uh, to Roger Stone, who is kind of a pivotal character here uh, with respect to Donald Trump, who is really his, you know, key go-to guy on dirty tricks and uh, politics. So um, it's getting closer, but we don't really know what's going on. I mean, that's the way grand jury works. Uh, it's all in secret. It's not something that's publicized. I mean, we do know that uh, people such as members of Congress have not been called yet because you would think um, that there would be a similar uh, pushback on some of these people if they were called to a grand jury. Although, you know, a grand jury is such that um, there really isn't very much room for pushback. So for all we know, various people could have been called in now that we just have no idea um, have testified before the grand jury. Are you of the mind that the DOJ should be more forthcoming about what kind of investigation they're conducting, what the scope is, or or do you think that 
this is appropriate and what should be happening. And it might be frustrating for all of us who are trying to read tea leaves, but the DOJ is conducting business the way it ought to, and we should all just, you know, deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this a grand jury uh, conducts its investigation in secret for good reasons. Uh, the idea is to you know hear evidence uh, in secret um, that may lead to an indictment. Uh, and the idea is to protect individuals um, from being tainted with criminal activity until such time uh, that they decide to go public with an indictment. That's the way our system works. So what we're seeing now is really not much different than how all grand jury investigations are being conducted. Um, it's a lot different than the January 6th committee where more of this is in the public sphere, although even there, and they've kept a lot of this information pretty tight to the vest. Uh, and we don't know yet exactly you know, what kinds of facts they've uncovered. There's been a lot of you know, indications in the press and there's been various times that we've actually had some statements from them. Um, but we don't know what the status of the evidence is on Donald Trump. And the key issue here, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of a criminal uh, indictment being leveled against Trump is whether or not they can actually tie him into the violence uh, that was perpetrated on the Capitol. Did he know about it in advance? Uh, was part of the plan to stop uh, the Electoral College count on January 6th uh, to create such mayhem and violence such that Congress could not continue um, considering its obligation to count those votes? That to me is the big question because you've really got, to, if you brought a criminal case against Donald Trump, you've got two problems with that. One, he's gonna raise the same First Amendment argument he raised in his second impeachment, where he was arguing that his statements at the ellipse prior to the uh, riot at the Capitol um, were protected by First Amendment speech. Um, and secondly, um, with respect to almost his admission that he was trying to get Trump, Pence uh, to delay the vote um, in order that they could get the states to, um, to, to come back with different electoral counts. Um, he's gonna argue in that case that he was simply, it was simply an interpretation of the Electoral College Act of 1887 um, which you know, doesn't make for a great criminal case even though it's a pretty ridiculous argument. Um, it, it doesn't have the same sex appeal that you would want to convict him beyond a reasonable doubt without evidence that he had knowledge that he was conspired to premeditate violence, knew about the violence, encouraged the violence while it was going on. There are bits and pieces of this in there that we know about. For example, um, the fact that he tweeted uh, during the course of the violence um, about Pence not doing the right thing. Uh, and in a sense, encouraging the violence. But we need something more. We just don't have it in terms of a case that would convict Donald Trump beyond a reasonable doubt. And when you're dealing with the president of the United States or a former president of the United States and somebody with that kind of visibility, you don't want to bring a case that's going to wind up as an acquittal because that would be absolutely the worst state of events 
is to yes. have him acquitted because you know what he'd be saying after that. I mean, oh my he'd be goodness. talking about the and exonerate. He says total exoneration when he's not. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. So the last <laughs> the last thing we need is for him to be exonerated. So um but there's a lot of things going on. I mean, as you mentioned before, um, there's some interesting developments that we've heard about in the news. Uh, Cipollone, who is the White House counsel and his aide have been called before the January 6th committee. Uh, you've got people, uh, for example, uh, in the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers that are cooperating. You know, what do they know about Roger Stone? Did they have conversations with him? Certainly the Oath Keepers were out there supposedly providing security for Roger Stone. Uh, what did Stone say to them about Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera. So th there's a lot of smoke out there that we don't really know, you know, what kind of fire is underlying that smoke. We just don't know at this point. Uh, and it's not something that DOJ would publicize at this point. Uh, and it, it's kind of a wait and see on this one. And we've been joined by Danny Savalos, legal analyst for NBC, MSNBC. Danny, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for having me. And once again, the great Nick Ackerman has taken away all the points that I wanted to make. No, no he didn't. Uh, I just want <laughs> no, he didn't, Danny. You're, well, you're a defense attorney. So it's like, you know, do you agree with Nick's analysis? Because I think that right, we question, got a Watergate prosecutor. We got a defense attorney. Yeah. Like, let's, you the, know, let's do at this. the end of the day, though. I think the big Nick hit on really what the with the overarching question the DOJ is asking themselves. Is there enough evidence to to convict beyond a reasonable doubt, assuming that all of, you know, what we assume will happen, which is Donald Trump is not going to make a deal. Federal cases like end in deals, not trials. So we're going to go to trial. They're going to be 12 jurors and we're going to have to hope that none of them are Trump supporters and that we can still get a conviction. Yeah. So you need evidence that will con convince a Trump supporter on a jury that Donald Trump is guilty of this. Is that sort of. Oh, the they're big not question? good at evidence based stuff. Is that is that yeah, the big so question that the DOJ is asking yeah. themselves? You know, you said something very interesting about, uh, you know, a lot of uh, 90 percent or so of federal cases, criminal cases end in guilty pleas. In fact, among defense attorneys, there are a lot of defense attorneys who don't even like to take federal cases because they feel like just a prolonged guilty plea. And those that do go to trial don't fare much better. Uh, the conviction rate hovers around 90 percent as well. But I'm so glad to hear Nick Ackerman in the last few minutes uh, you know, talk about something that I, I feel really strongly about which is this, you know, it's very easy. And I've been saying this for a long time and I'm guilty of this myself. Many times I have gone on air and said something to the effect of, oh, this investigation, the walls are closing in or, you know, technically this was a violation of the crime. But really when push comes to shove, it's an actual federal prosecutor who has to, who has to put his or her career and her, their reputation on the line if they're going to indict someone like the former president, like Donald Trump. That is a high risk right. game. And Donald Trump knows that. Uh, and so I, I'm glad to hear Nick mention that, uh, although he stole my thunder. But uh, yes, I agree with the fact that you can, it's very easy for us to say, you know, based on the evidence we have, and, and candidly, I think we have a lot of the evidence uh, that we're going to have already. I mean, you either fall into the camp of when Trump says, I'll walk with you down to the Capitol, you either believe that that is in, uh, inducing people to riot, or you think it's just chit chat, because that's really what this comes down to. And Nick is right, that this is gonna really come down to First Amendment defenses. And any prosecutor knows that, and they know they're taking on a massive risk 
And they're not only going to go up against the former president, but they're going to technically go up against the Constitution and the defense of uh, free speech. Considering how important that one phrase is, that 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 I'll, I'll walk with you, let's go to the Capitol, were, were either of you as shocked as I was to hear Trump say, I actually wanted to go to the Capitol with them, Secret Service stopped me? Like, does that does that have any bearing on, on establishing this motive that we're talking about right now? Gee, I, I really don't think so. Um, I mean, it, it still goes back to um, his argument that, well, my supporters were angry and they were dis- disappointed that I lost the election. Uh, and all I wanted to do was have them and me go up there and let Congress know our displeasure about the election. I mean, that, that's going to be his argument. But I think the one case that we're ignoring here, the one that I think has the best chance of convicting Donald Trump uh, beyond a reasonable doubt is the one in Georgia. Um, there's a real crime. It, it has to do with the criminal solicitation to commit election fraud. Uh, it's a three-year felony. Uh, it's got what every prosecutor wants in a case. It's got two tape recordings uh, with mm-hmm. Donald Trump basically soliciting uh, the Secretary of State and then the chief investigator basically uh, to make up votes so that the election in Georgia is decided in his favor. Uh, and when you take what happened there in the two tapes, you know, as a defense lawyer, where I've handled these things before as a defense lawyer, you always look for the ambiguities in the tapes. And what the defense would be in this case would be well, he didn't really mean um, for. Uh, Raffensperger to Raffensburg to, to come up with votes or to do anything criminal. He didn't really have that intent. The problem with that is the DA in Georgia can actually take all of this evidence that the January 6th committee has put together and put that into evidence in the Georgia case in order to show motive, deten- uh, intent, plan, um, his way of doing things and to put it in the context of you know Trump's tape-recorded conjoling and threats um, by showing uh, that this was all relevant to the big lie about him having won the election and it being rigged uh, and his overall scheme uh, to overturn the election. So to me, that's where he faces the biggest threat of being convicted beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, there is a place where you could put a case together that I think has a real chance of sending him to prison. Wow. It doesn't feel like there's enough focus on, on what's happening. Do you feel like there's, is there too much focus on what's happening regarding January 6th and not enough focus on what's happening? I, I'm talking about media focus, not legal focus. Like, are we too obsessed with what happened on January 6th and we're missing that the actual crux of the argument might be the lead up? Oh, I, th- I well, think with the media, media, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Danny. <laughs> No, no, go, Nick. Go, Nick, please. No, I'm just saying, I think the media has missed the, uh, missed the context of this in the sense that the real criminal case, the best case of conviction is in Georgia. Um, and I think it's just because if you don't try these cases or defend these types of cases, um, you don't kind of see through uh, all the noise here. And if you step back a little bit and you look at what the evidence is, um, I think the focus really ought to be on Georgia, which is going to start a um, grand jury investigation in May next month, which I think is going to be extremely significant. Yeah, let me let me jump in, too, because I totally agree with Nick. If your mission is 
to implicate Donald Trump in a crime, I do think sometimes th that there's been a, a focus on cases that are not as strong as other cases. And I'll, I'll give you another example. I mean, for a long time, we talked about the Mueller investigation and you know wh whether or not Trump was uh, exposed to criminal liability. But quietly, some six, maybe six years ago, maybe, maybe less, I went out to the Southern District of New York where uh, Michael Cohen rushed in to plead guilty and essentially implicate the president in a crime in a, uh, that say in open court, Michael Cohen did, that the president directed him to do something that Michael Cohen was now pleading guilty to. Uh, and that was an election-related crime. And to me, back then, that posed the greatest threat to Donald Trump, not the Avenatti lawsuits and not the, uh, and arguably not even the Mueller report, because for a long time, we didn't know what was in the Mueller report. So I, I totally agree with Nick on that, in that the, you know, the Georgia case might pose a greater threat, criminal threat, to Donald Trump. To me, and I, I, I hesitate to say that we're focusing too much on January 6th, because January 6th was a sea change. It was, you know, it was a, mm -hmm. a seismic event. Uh, but in terms of criminal culpability for President Trump, that narrow issue, uh, I do believe that uh, that that is not going to be as viable uh, a criminal prosecution as others. Uh, and, you know, the Georgia case that Nick talks about is a good example. But, you know, to me, no matter what we uncover and with Donald Trump, you're not going to uncover an email because he don't email. You're not going to the guy knows how to, uh, how to create a lot of, as they uh, said in The Godfather, buffers uh, between him and other people. So, I mean, I think probably you have the best evidence against Trump for January 6th already. Uh, and, you know, ultimately it's going to come down to, come on, I was telling people to go to the Capitol. I didn't tell them to, you know, kick open the door and steal podiums and, and riot and attack cops and, you know, and uh, be violent. I mean, after all, you know, had Trump, let's say, for example, let's assume for the moment that Donald Trump did tell people to go to the Capitol and he wanted them to wave their flags and stomp and shout and, uh, and yell and, uh, and be, you know, rowdy. Uh, that would be constitutionally protected. I mean, even if he told them to go to the Capitol and then he can just say, well, I didn't, ex I wanted them to go shout and yell and scream at the Capitol. I didn't want them to do that. I didn't want them to, you know, to go in and actually disrupt. I wanted them to make noise. I mean, that's just one avenue that makes that a very difficult case, I think. And I just don't see it yet. And frankly, I mean, had he said even something stronger in his, uh, at the, in that, in that recording, uh, you know, instead of just walk down there, you know, go down there, make some noise, you know, uh, you know uh, shout a lot, you know, yell at people. I still don't know that we'd be there. So, yeah, I totally agree with Nick that, that in terms of, Hoping for a criminal prosecution against Trump. If you're, if that's what you're, if, if that's what you're hoping to see, I don't know that you're going to see it through January sixth. Yeah, and let me let me just say, I mean, two points here. I, mean, I agree with Danny. Um, first of all, the January sixth is very relevant to Georgia. I mean, you can get that into evidence in Georgia with those tapes. That is, that puts Georgia over the finish line because it obliterates any defense that Trump has about any kind of innocent intent in terms of his conversations with the two people uh, in Georgia. Um, the second thing that Danny mentions, I think is pretty significant too, and that is looking back at the Michael Cohen case. I mean, again, it gives you an idea of kind of the, the quality of evidence that one needs to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, if the government or Mueller or anybody 
thought to bring a case against Donald Trump just based on Michael Cohen's testimony. Uh, that, again, I think would be an extremely difficult case with one cooperating witness. You've got some corroboration, but not overwhelming. And you've also got a legal theory about um, campaign contributions that would be pretty novel uh, and difficult to, to press forward. Um, and again, what it emphasizes is when you've got a defendant on tape and you've got his own words basically uh, committing the crime. This is just like we had on Richard Nixon um, in the September tape uh, where he basically was orchestrating the cover up for the Watergate investigation. Um, it, it's exactly the same situation. Now, we didn't wind up um, indicting Richard Nixon because uh, we deferred to Congress, which was then undergoing an impeachment process. Uh, and we didn't indict him afterwards because he had been pardoned by uh, President Ford. Uh, but the tape recorded evidence there uh, was what made that case um, against all the other defendants. And it would have made the case against Richard Nixon, who was named as an unindicted co-conspirator in the Watergate trial, uh, in order that his statements and other statements could come in in furtherance of the conspiracy to obstruct. Uh, but again, I think what Danny mentioned before about a single witness uh, like Michael Cohen, it's just like the problem I think the DA is having with the tax case. I mean, even if Weisselberg were to cooperate um, and, and testify against Trump, that is a very difficult case to have one person's word against another person's word uh, and hope for a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. That's why I really believe this Georgia case is, is where we ought to be focusing. I am so Already excited to plan this segment because um, <laughs> I started out in one place and now I'm like, yes, we should be focused a yeah, lot totally. more on this other case. <laughs> and I didn't realize until this conversation. <laughs> can, can, can we go to the other case? Can, can we ask for your opinions? Uh, let's start with Danny about what's going on in New York, because a lot has changed since the last time you and, and we spoke about this. The prosecutor has resigned. Alvin Bragg says there's, the investigation is still ongoing. We have very little, very little clarity on what's happening there. Do you still see that as a, a major front of concern for Trump or is that, is, is that more or less over? You know, I am so perplexed by the, the direction this investigation has gone. I mean, it couldn't be infused with any more drama. You have this wide ranging investigation uh, and you have a you know, top prosecutor at the, who resigned saying, essentially, I think we have enough to charge him and, and the boss yeah. isn't charging him. And I mean, it's I for, for the life of me, the only thing I can think is it goes back to uh, the new district attorney look, taking stock of the case and asking himself, it may all boil down to this. Do I feel lucky? Do I feel like I can uh -huh. stake my political career? on this prosecution. I mean, unfortunately, you know, I, I'm sure that all the elected DAs are out there to do justice, but you know, they're, they're politicians too. And they have a, a modicum of self-preservation uh, in their heart. And so, I mean, that's gotta be the only, I mean, if you have two reasonable legal minds, one thinks there isn't much to the investigation. The other thinks unequivocally that there is a, a beyond a reasonable doubt case I mean, it, it's it's really surprising to me. And maybe you could just chalk it up to, hey, you know, the, the actual DA has to take the hit if this case is unsuccessful, not the 
lead, not the prosecutor who was investigating it, but look, I mean, this is a prosecutor who was willing to stake his career and, and bring this case and, and resigned over frustration about it. I, I am, I and remain utterly perplexed as to what is going on. And I, I rather think my, my feeling is that it's going to lose steam. And I base that nothing on just a gut feeling, uh, mm -hmm. just based on the DA's apparent lack of interest. Uh, but uh, it is it is a surprising turn of events. I mean, it really is almost movie-esque in its uh, in its in its drama. And of course, I mean, if nothing else, I think folks out there are going to feel like the fix is in somehow. And mm -hmm. I, I'm not saying that it is at all, but it's going to feel like that because you have this investigation that looks like the walls are closing in, and then all of a sudden, oh no, we're we're not as interested in this anymore. We don't feel as, as sanguine about it. I mean, it's it's shocking. It looks like an episode I'm of Billions, sure. Danny. It looks like. uh, let, let me just comment on that outside. because because uh, I, I think what we're dealing with here is, is really a tax case. And that's what makes this so different. Um, I put mm. together the tax, the tax prosecution, if we we're going to ever bring it on Richard Nixon for backdating his deed of a gift of papers to the U.S. government. Um, and we didn't obviously bring it because he was pardoned, but it was really based on you know, evidence by two insiders. And, and it's not like we had him on tape on this. Uh, and tax cases are extremely difficult because they come down to a person's intent as to what they did. Um, and in this particular case in New York, I mean, Mark Pomerantz, who was the prosecutor who was brought in, uh, he was a colleague of mine in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District, um, extremely smart guy. Um, if he says there was a, a, a case, I'm, I'm sure there was a case, but, you know, reasonable minds can differ on a tax case. I mean, I, I don't know how many tax cases I've either prosecuted or defended where you come down to arguing, did the person really intend to lie on the return? Unless you've got slam dunk evidence where there's been a fraudulent company set up like Trump's father did. Uh, back, uh, you know, in the early days to try and siphon money out of his uh, organization to his, um, you know, to Trump, to his son and to his, his daughter and other um, of the siblings. Unless you've got that, this is a, a tax case by its nature is very, very difficult. And by the way, Ron Fischetti, who is Trump's um, uh, defense lawyer here, who I've also Defend, and I've been co-counsel with him in criminal defense cases, is extremely good. This is probably the best lawyer that Trump has come up with. And by the way, Ron Fischetti and Mark Pomerantz were both law partners at one time. Um, so it shows you how incestuous this is. But I think what this really boils down to is that real reasonable minds can really differ on a tax case because it comes down to you feel comfortable that you can really prove without some kind of badge of fraud, as they say in the tax, criminal tax arena, as to having a phony account, a phony company like Trump's father did. Uh, unless you've got that, these are difficult cases. And again, like I said before, unless you can prove him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and there is a reasonable chance that he could wind up being acquitted, that is the last thing you want with this particular defendant. I mean, I remember in Watergate, we were extremely careful. The question always was, can we really convict the person beyond a reasonable doubt before we indicted? Because the public reaction 
to having acquittals would have been just disastrous. And certainly with Donald Trump, and I can't emphasize this enough, for him to get an acquittal here would just be the absolute worst thing that could ever happen. Nick, I, I want to I start with you. Given your history as a Watergate prosecutor watching this, um, what what has surprised you the most? Because like we're all we're all coming into this blind. <laughs> we don't know what we're supposed to be seeing. We just know none of this looks right. <laughs> Nothing seems normal. This doesn't feel like it's following appropriate twists and turns. Like we don't know what's going on. Like what has surprised you about how this has been handled, given your um, unique familiarity with um, prosecuting a, a former president? Yeah, I think what surprised me the most, and this goes right back to the uh, Mueller investigation, um, the big difference between what we had in Watergate and what we've had here is that in Watergate, Archibald Cox was really appointed as a special prosecutor, independent of the Department of Justice. Uh, we had total independence. We could investigate anything that came across the transom that related to Richard Nixon. Uh, nobody was stopping us from doing anything, although they tried with the Saturday Night Massacre. Um, but we had independence. The problem here is that there was this ridiculous regulation in place in the Department of Justice that uh, provided for uh, the appointment of a special counsel. Uh, and unfortunately, with Robert Mueller, um, that wound up... Uh, you know, really circumscribing uh, the scope of his investigation. It also wound up with Donald Trump being able to place pressure on people in the Department of Justice to rein in that investigation and to keep them really in a position where they never knew from day to day whether they were going to be around or be fired or what would happen. Uh, it wound up with, before Trump left office, them appointing a special uh, the counsel, the guy from Connecticut, the U.S. attorney, um, who continued in his investigation into whether or not uh, Trump or the Democrats kind of did something to falsify evidence on the uh, allegation that there was a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. And that's continuing today with kind of some ridiculous uh, prosecutions, one being this one for perjury on a lawyer who didn't um, basically uh, tell um, somebody in the Department of Justice uh, who his client was on a particular matter, which was completely ridiculous. Uh, and now we've got a situation where I think the Attorney General, who means well, um, doesn't want to make what he's doing look political because of what happened during the four years of Trump. So that if you had a real independent special prosecutor now, he wouldn't have that problem. But his problem, as I see it, is a political problem that he doesn't want to continue what the Trump administration did, politicizing the Department of Justice. So what you've got now is kind of like the opposite situation where he's afraid to move, whereas an independent person would not be afraid to move uh, to be a lot more aggressive here. For example, uh, what they are not doing is they are not calling into the grand jury uh, the people from the top down. They're not calling in Donald Trump to testify. They're not calling in um, Mark Meadows, who is his chief of staff, to testify. I mean, I think we would know that if it happened. Uh, it doesn't seem like they're calling in any of his cohorts in, in Congress who were behind this whole uh, process to try and um, basically overturn the election. Uh, in Watergate, we put people in from the top down. 
uh, in the grand jury. We didn't do it with Nixon until afterwards, but we did it with everybody. I mean, I questioned H.R. Haldeman, who was his chief of staff. I questioned um, Ehrlichman, uh, everybody. We had everybody, Charles Colson, you name it. They all went in, they all lied. And many of these people wound up being uh, charged and convicted for perjury. But you have a lot more leeway with a federal grand jury. And I think the problem I've got now with uh, Merrick Garland is even though they may have this investigation going on, it, it seems though it's starting from the bottom and working its way up as opposed to starting from the bottom and going to the top and having it all meet in the middle. That's what they're not doing. And that's the part that, I've, that, that surprises me. And it all relates to this lack of independence with a special counsel, a special prosecutor, I mean, after Watergate, there was a statute that was passed that provided for special counsel, which was wholly abused to the point where Congress just decided not to go forward with it. And I think the only way that you could ever really get the same situation we had back in Watergate is to really let the political process deal with appointing somebody who is independent of the Department of Justice, like we had, um, and that, that's what I see. Are we going to get a special prosecutor? I don't. I don't see it happening because oh. you've got this ridiculous regulation in the Department of Justice that provides for it, which really puts it under the thumb of the Attorney General and under the supervision mm -hmm. of the Attorney General. Um, what you really need is an independent special prosecutor, and okay. we really aren't set up to do that. That's okay. the problem. And you won't get it from Congress uh, at this point because DOJ will come back and say, we've got this regulation. So that's what we need. We need somebody independent of the Department of Justice at this point in time, because I think Merrick Garland means well. He doesn't want to politicize the Department of Justice, but you really need someone uh, to kick butt here, take names, put people in the grand jury, and not be afraid of who you put in the grand jury. I mean, the first person I'd put in is Donald Trump. What do you think, Danny? And, yeah, I think what, what's interesting is that, you know, the fear of, uh, of politicizing a prosecution or investigation is always that, you know, that uh, an attorney general like Merrick Garland might uh, be too uh, pro-Democrat and I think Nick is right in that what you're seeing is a real reluctance. And, and there's so many signs to me that there is a reluctance uh, by Merrick Garland to turn this into a political investigation and prosecution. And I think that uh, that explains a lot of his hesitation. And I think folks, you know, are criticizing him for that. But at the same time, you know, it's not as if he's I don't see that he's he's, uh, uh, you know, hesitating for bad reasons. I think these are very good reasons. Uh, and like Nick said, it would be great to have a, an independent special prosecutor. I don't think that's going to happen either. But, uh, you know, it, I, I am not surprised that Merrick Garland is stepping back. I am not surprised that the uh, January 6th committee uh, concluded that there would be that uh, they found evidence of criminality. But, you know, I think they were going to from a then it becomes political even more so. Right. Because then the question arose, well, are they going to refer it? Uh, to the DOJ for prosecution. Well, those referrals don't have the force of law. So then it's a purely political decision. Do we, do we make that referral if we know the DOJ might be investigating uh, and might prosecute anyway? Then it becomes a bit of a right. gamble. Uh, yeah. Then you're basically, you know, you're, you're wondering, you know, you're left wondering if you're on the committee, well, 
what's the DOJ going to do anyway? What's going to happen, you know, whether or not we refer it? If we refer it for uh, criminal investigation, then it looks political if the DOJ prosecutes. If we don't refer it, we look a lot better if the DOJ prosecutes because it won't be perceived as a, you know, a political prosecution at all. That's the best outcome. So, in a, you know, as irony, again, rears its head in, in, uh, in politics, you know, the, the best thing for the January 6th committee, if they want to prosecute uh, Donald Trump, would be to not refer uh, him for uh, prosecution to the DOJ. So that's an interesting paradox, I think, that we find ourselves in. But, uh, you know, strange times. I'm yeah, I, I agree with Danny, and I think there's, there is a way out of this, as I see it. Um, okay. And it really goes back to the parallel with Watergate and what we did in our office. Um, and, and I think the Congress has to do kind of the opposite of what we did. That is, back in Watergate, we had evidence on Richard Nixon. We could have indicted Richard Nixon, um, but we didn't do it because of, as I said before, the ongoing impeachment process that was then in full swing. But what we did do is we prepared uh, a, a paper that basically outlined all of the evidence that we had against Richard Nixon and sent all of that evidence uh, to the House Judiciary Committee that was considering the articles of impeachment. And that document basically listed chronologically what it was that Nixon did, when he did it, it included uh, information from the public record. It included information from the grand jury. We got permission from Judge Sirica, who was the chief judge at the time, uh, to release that grand jury uh, information. Uh, and if you read that, I mean, you, you walked away from it saying, this guy's got to be prosecuted. I mean, he's committed mm -hmm. a crime. And so what I think the January 6th committee can do here is to basically do the same thing take all of their evidence, now this is going the opposite way from Congress to the Department of Justice in a sense, but I think what they ought to do, not make a specific recommendation, but simply put together all of the evidence that shows what Donald Trump did, evidence that reflects what his intent was at the time, evidence that would not only just include what he said or what the document said, but what the other witnesses said, put it in a chronological order, such that by the time you finish reading that, the Department of Justice feels like they have no choice but to go ahead and take action against Trump. I mean, to me, that would be a much more powerful message than just saying, oh, we're referring this for criminal prosecution, because Danny's right. Um, there's nothing that um, would that has the force of law that would necessarily uh, force them to do it, but it's the facts that force it. And that's why I think it's really important uh, that they basically uh, do a copy of what we did back in Watergate, except in reverse. Uh, and if it's done properly and you read through that and you have no other conclusion but that Donald Trump committed a crime, then you've really put Donald, uh, the Department of Justice in a bind with the facts and you've given them the justification to do what they have to do. Would that kind of document be public? Is that something that we would be able to read? Like, does public pressure enter into this? Or is that, would that be private communication between the January 6th? No, I, th I, I think it would be public. I mean, at that point, I mean, I think, I'm trying to remember if we had actually made that public at the time. I think we limited it because we were doing something different. We had different constraints on us, which was grand jury secrecy. 
Uh, and we had to get permission from the chief judge in the District of Columbia in order to do that. I mean, we got a special, it's called a Rule 6E order, which governs grand jury uh, secrecy, which we talked about before. I hear uh, what the committee does is not secret. I mean, it, they, they've kept some of it secret just because they want to protect the integrity of their investigation and they don't want other people to know what others are saying. Um, but once they do this and release it, there's no reason why it shouldn't be made public at the same time. I, I would enjoy reading it. <laughs> I want to read it. I mean, okay. a lot of people didn't read the Mueller report. But um, no, I, I read that too. I, I would. I was I like, there's a lot of crimes in well. this. How come nobody's in jail? <laughs> I mean, there were people in jail, just not the people that were, a lot not of the, the people, people that were described committing crimes in the Mueller report never ended up in jail. I didn't know that was, I mean, I know that's possible. There's a lot of people who don't end up in jail that commit a lot of crimes. Um, in, in terms of, you know, the way the American public should consume the potential hearings, I'm assuming the Jan 6 committee is going to have televised hearings. They're going to try to do a presentation, and they're aware of what happened during the Mueller investigation. They're aware of some of the missteps, I think, that were taken during that investigation, and, and also that led up to sort of the testimony of Robert Mueller that, you know, I think in many ways that whole process sort of fizzled out at the end. Um, how can we make this different? Is that possible? These hearings? Make them impactful. I'll start with I'll start with Nick since Watergate I think is a parallel here. Yeah, it definitely is a parallel because there was a Senate Select Committee that uh, actually had a lot of drama to it. Probably the most dramatic part was Alex Butterfield, who was in the White House, who revealed the Nixon taping system. Um, I think what they really need to do is put together this. It's sort of like putting together a criminal trial or a Broadway show to make it interesting. You've got to have some pretty impactful stuff to be able to present to the public uh, so that you catch their imagination and you get people to watch it. So, and, and they did that in the Watergate hearings. I mean, obviously the star witness was uh, John Dean who basically laid out um, conversations between him, Nixon and others in the Oval Office. Uh, he was counsel to the president at the time. Uh, and of course, the White House attacked him, saying that he was lying. And then it turned out the tapes came out, and we found out from the tapes he was telling absolutely the exact truth and had it down to, to the to the minute almost. It was it was pretty amazing. Um, but that's what they need to do. They need to, um, you know, get the public on board with this because it, it's very easy for people to put this aside. And, it, and now with this. A war in Ukraine, it makes it even more difficult because people are so focused on, on what's going on in Europe at this point in time. So that, that, that makes for a bigger challenge here. But I really think it's important uh, that they put this together in a very compelling way. It's almost like if I were a prosecutor and putting on my case and, and wanting to you know, keep the jury awake um, and you know, interested and watching. And that's what they've got to do here. In the last couple minutes that we have, I want to go back to Georgia because that was fun. Um, what happens uh, next? What are we watching for? How <laughs> soon is this going to happen? Like, what's our timeline here? <laughs> yeah, um, in Georgia, there's going to be a grand jury that's going to be impaneled in May. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got a, a pretty aggressive prosecutor there. She, her, her background, just so you know. Um, she had brought, to, brought a, a RICO case against some teachers that, uh, you know, committed some crimes uh, 
in Georgia. Uh, and the RICO is probably a good example because under the racketeering statute, uh, you don't just look at one crime, you look at a series of crimes and a pattern of what occurred. And that's why I think this is another reason why this poses the biggest threat to Donald Trump, because she knows that in order to make this case, she has to put these two tapes in the context of everything else he was doing in terms of trying to overturn the election and in terms of the big lie about the election being stolen. So I, I think that what we're going to watch for is whether people are called into this grand jury from outside of Georgia. Um, it's no coincidence that we know that this prosecutor has had uh, contact with the January 6th committee. So I think that she is going to take some of the best stuff, best evidence that puts those tapes in context. Uh, and that's what we ought to be watching for. I mean, who gets subpoenaed from Washington? Who suddenly shows up in um, outside the grand jury room in, uh, in, in Georgia? Um, that's what's going to be very interesting here. Nick Ackerman and Danny Savalos, thank you both so much for this conversation. I am um, world smarter <laughs> for it, and hopefully our listeners are too. We really yep. appreciate both of you, as always. Super great. Okay, man. thank you I for having us. So much. I'm so, so happy much. that we did this. <laughs> my whole brain has shifted. So did I. Particular topic. Oh my God, Danny's learning too. It's so fun when everybody <laughs> can learn. I'm furiously, learn together. I'm furiously taking notes on what everything Nick said. So good. <laughs> We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.